Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. In this episode, I'd like to tell you about the lawsuit against Israel claiming that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The case is heard at the International Court of Justice in Hague, Holland. But before I do that, I want to give you an update on the fighting in the Gaza. Israelis, we Israelis, wake up every morning and dreadfully open up our news channels, mainly Israeli news applications. I say dreadfully because we fear the following words in Hebrew, hutar lepirsum, meaning it is now permissible to report. And next, we hear the names of the soldiers who were killed, usually the day prior. Their families and loved ones have already been notified. It's heartbreaking. On Tuesday, January 9th, 2024, such an announcement included the names of nine soldiers in what was one of the more tragic days since the invasion of Gaza. Two of the soldiers were killed by shoulder missile, one in a firefight, and the remaining six in a freak accident in which an Israeli tank fired a shell, resulting in ignition of electricity, which in turn ignited explosive material carried by those soldiers. The tragic incident took place in the El Bourej refugee camp in the center of Gaza Strip. The soldiers killed were from the engineer corps. The tragedy is painful and frustrating, but we are at war. Having participated in the Lebanon War, I can truly understand what is known as the fog of war. It sounds cliche, but it is so true. Fighting is intense, and clarity is often minimal at best. This is even more the case in the Gaza Strip, where the fighting is in urban areas, house to house, and is extremely at close range. In the tragic explosion that killed the six soldiers, eight others were injured. Among them, a soldier named Idan Amedi, one of the stars of the TV show Fauda. For those not in the know-how, the TV show Fauda is based on real-life experience of its creators and actors. The series follows a team of elite Israeli undercover agents as they work to apprehend Hamas activists in the West Bank. Idana Medi plays the role of an elite IDF soldier named Sagi. In real life, Amedi, fighting in Gaza, was taken to the hospital after a much shrapnel penetrated all parts of his body. He underwent successful surgery and is now conscious. A long road of recovery faces him, as it does many other injured soldiers. More from the battlefield. Israeli Defense Forces soldiers from the Givati Brigade, an infantry unit similar to the U.S. Marines, destroyed terrorist infrastructures, killed terrorists, and uncovered many ammunition depots used by Hamas. IDF spokesman General Daniel Hagari published the following. Accurate intelligence information led the Givati Brigade soldiers to raid the Islamic University, which was used as Hamas terror infrastructure. Weapons were found in the classrooms, including Russian-made Kalashnikov submachine guns, bullet cartridges, other type of ammunition, Hamas flags, and safes full of cash. 
Furthermore, in the search, the soldiers also located stockpiles of weapons, including 100 mortar shells, ready-to-use chargers, grenades, combat equipment, and maps used by the Hamas terrorists. Assisted by the Air Force and the Navy, on January 9th alone, over 150 terrorist targets were attacked in the Gaza Strip. Now, the next words I'll say are not popular in Israel, mainly since Israeli society is somewhat of a village mentality, and rightfully so. We're all affected by our casualties in this difficult and dreadful war. Having said that, on October 7th, Hamas killed about 334 Israeli Defense Forces soldiers. Many had no weapons. Most were slaughtered. Since the intense Israel ground invasion, just over 180 Israeli Defense Forces soldiers were killed. Every life matters. My youngest daughter lost her best guy friend who was killed in Gaza. Yet, and I say this with a heavy heart, in this type of difficult urban fighting against terrorists armed to the teeth, our casualty numbers is considerably, are considerably not high. What is high is the number of injured soldiers. Thus far, about 2,500 injured Israeli soldiers, although most of them, thankfully, only lightly injured. The IDF is now in its third phase of the fighting. That is to say, conducting raids in the entirety of the Gaza Strip. And at the same time, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, is starting to thin out its forces, using mostly special units to carry out the operations. In southern Gaza, the IDF is putting pressure on Khan Yunis. That is where the leaders of Hamas are probably holed up. We are assuming that the loss of control of Hamas in Khan Yunis will advance negotiations for the release of hostages. And now to the West Bank front. On January 9th, the Israeli Defense Forces, at the direction of the Shin Bet, the Israeli Secret Service, arrested 14 wanted terrorists throughout the West Bank. The IDF operated in a counterterrorism operation in the Janine refugee camp as well. During the operation, the soldiers uncovered over 80 ready-to-use bomb detonators buried under roads aiming to explode on the IDF forces and civilians traveling the roads. In another operation, in the Kasbah of Nabulus, also known as Shechem, reserve soldiers interrogated suspects, arrested two wanted people, confiscated guns and other types of weapons, ammunition, and military equipment. Since October 7th, Hamas is strongly pushing to activate the West Bank Palestinians. They would like to see terror strikes at Israel civilians and military from within the West Bank. Many West Bank Palestinians have complied, but with minor success due to the Israeli counterterrorism activity. Since October 7th, Israeli forces arrested more than 2,600 wanted persons in the West Bank, about 1,300 of whom are directly affiliated with Hamas. 2,000 kilometers away from Israel, that's roughly 1,200 miles, south of Israel and the Red Sea area, the Iranian-backed Yemen Houthi faction is still terrorizing cargo ships. According to United States defense officials, on January 9th, three American warships shot down a total of 24 Houthi missiles and drones launched from Yemen. The United States defense officials noted that most of the Houthi missiles and drones attempted to attack ships that have nothing to do with Israel. The U.S. and its allies have decided they will not let a terror organization act as pirates on the sea and disrupt world shipping. The Houthis in Iran were warned several times but did not heed. As a matter of fact, they stepped up the attacks. So the United States, the United Kingdom, 
and other nations launched attacks against the Houthi targets in Yemen. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, spoke at the U.N. and said the following, The attacks launched during the night were intended to disrupt and damage the ability of the Houthis to continue their reckless attacks against vessels and commercial shipping. The attack on the Houthis are consistent with international law in an exercising the U.S.'s inherent right to self-defense, as reflected in Article 51 of the U.N. Charter. Thomas Greenfield emphasized that the U.S. does not want a conflict in the region and that the goal was to reduce tension and restore stability in the Red Sea while maintaining the basic principle of freedom of navigation. And now to the Lebanese front. On January 8th, the commander of the Radwan force named Wissam Tawil was killed in a drone attack. The Radwan force is a special operations force unit of Hezbollah. Its main mission is to infiltrate Israel just as the Hamas Nukba force did on October 7th. Wissam Tawil, once again the commander of the force, left his house in the neighborhood of El Dubsha in the town of Khilbet Salim and got in his car. Within a few seconds, a missile hit his car and burnt it completely. Not much was left to identify. It was Tawil's wife testifying it was indeed him that got into the car. The next day, Israel eliminated or killed the commander of Hezbollah's air unit in southern Lebanon. He was the commander of the armed drones attempting to strike inside Israel. He led dozens of operations against Israel. Look, in their line of work, these two people, their death is basically considered a natural one. Hezbollah has been partially successful in hitting military targets in Israel, including military bases. I still say, as I've done since the start of the war, that Hezbollah is not interested in escalating the fighting beyond daily attrition. But then again, this is the Middle East. A few more words about the morale of Israeli soldiers fighting on three fronts and more. Research and polling were conducted on 742 reserve soldiers of all sectors of Israeli life. The research shows that the level of confidence of these reservists in the ability to achieve the goals of the war is very high, especially with an emphasis on the defeat of Hamas in Gaza. Most agreed that there is a high level of morale in the unit themselves, and they are willing to continue serving in the reserves for a long time in the current war in order to achieve the war aims. Look, whenever you hear the soldiers speak, whenever you see them on TV, whenever you bump into them on the roads, they will tell you that they are highly motivated and are ready to finish the job. That was the update on the fighting, and now I'm going to jump into The Hague. That is, the International Court of Justice, situated in Hague, Holland, that convened and started to deliberate on Thursday, January 11th, on a South African lawsuit claiming that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The trial is expected to take a year, maybe two, in the least. So, South Africa, because it's going to take a long time, demands to issue an interim order that would immediately suspend Israel's military operation in the Gaza Strip, saying that this is an absurd, false, deceitful, fictitious claim would be an understatement. But unfortunately, as we've seen, that when it comes to Israel, facts don't really matter. Not even when those facts have to do with Hamas perpetrating massive torture, rape, murder, and destruction. So first of all, let's ask ourselves, why South Africa? Why not anybody else? Why not the Palestinians? A couple of reasons led South Africa to accuse Israel at The Hague. One is that the South Africans are in solidarity with the Palestinians. This is due to the fact that Israel had ties, mainly security-based, with a former white minority regime in the past racist South Africa. A second reason has to do with the 
popularity or lack thereof of the current ruling party led by President Ramfosa. The party and the president himself are failing miserably. They are on the eve of difficult elections and are accused of heavy criminal corruption. A third reason is that President Ramfosa has surrounded himself with Muslim religious clergy. Foreign affairs are not at the top of the list of the vast majority of South Africans who are struggling for basic existence. But the president chose to make the announcement of taking Israel to the International Court of Justice while surrounded by Muslim clerics, imams, known for their extreme hatred of Israel. For these reasons, the president, the ruling party, want to present themselves in a better light to their constituents. Okay, so now let's ask the question of who and what is the International Court of Justice? And let's try to understand this. So first of all, it's very important to know that there are two courts of justice in The Hague. One is called the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Their job is to investigate and, where warranted, to try individuals charged with the gravest crimes of concern to the international community. Crimes such as genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. This is a court of last resort. It seeks to complement, not to replace, national courts. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, is not the court in which the case against Israel will be heard. Once again, it is not the ICC, but rather the ICG, the International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice is governed by an international treaty called the Rome Statute. The court was established in 1945 as a way of settling disputes between countries. Does 1945 ring a bell? Yes, it is the end of World War II, and the court was set up as a result of the most atrocious genocide, the Holocaust. Both the ICC and the ICJ, both courts, were established due to the Nazis and their collaborating nations and individuals, committing unprecedented crimes against humanity, namely murdering a third of world Jewry. On a side note, countries that understand reality and laws of war versus fake, lying, fictitious claims are saying loud and clear that the accusation of Israel committing genocide is totally bogus. The German government issued a statement on Friday saying the following, Germany expressly rejects the accusation of genocide against Israel and that the accusation has no basis whatsoever. The announcement also said, in view of Germany's history and the crime against humanity of the Shoah, the Holocaust, the federal government of Germany sees itself as particularly committed to the Convention Against Genocide. We firmly oppose the political instrumentalization of genocide, the instrumentalization of genocide. Don't use it as an instrument. Government spokesman Stefan Herberstadt said Germany would speak at the main hearing at the International Court of Justice as a third party opposing the South African claim. Another spokesman for the UK, the United Kingdom Prime Minister Rishi Sanuk, said that South Africa's case was completely unjustified and wrong. He continued, The UK government stands by Israel's clear right to defend itself within the framework of international law. Let's get back to the idea of who and what is the International Court of Justice. The role of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, is to discuss issues and conflicts between countries. The court will hand down a decision, but will also provide advisory opinion on legal questions that have been referred to it by other authorized UN parties or UN members or UN organs. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is not a Supreme Court to which national courts can turn. It can only hear a dispute when requested to do so by one or more countries. 
The court resides in the Peace Palace in Hague in the Netherlands, once again Holland. The panel of justices for this hearing consists of 15 permanent justices from diverse countries, serving now a country such as the United States, Somalia, Uganda, Lebanon, Russia, China, Morocco, Germany, France, Australia, Slovakia, Japan, Jamaica, Brazil, and India. In addition to the 15 will be one justice from the plaintiff country, which is South Africa, and one justice from Israel, namely the former Supreme Court President Professor Aaron Barak. As mentioned, the court is compromised of 15 justices, all of whom are elected to nine-year terms of office by the UN General Assembly and the Security Council. Elections are held every three years for one-third of the seats, and retiring judges may be re-elected. The members of the court are not supposed to represent their governments. They are supposed to be independent. I want to reemphasize this. They are not supposed to represent their governments, but rather be independent and rule independently. And if you think that is the case, think again, especially when it comes to Israel. It is clear as day that countries such as Lebanon, Somalia, Uganda, Russia, China, Morocco, and others receive direct instructions from their government, mostly run by dictators, of how to vote. And now to the case itself. South Africa's lawsuits contends that acts and omissions by Israel are genocidal in character and they are committed with a specific intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as part of a broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnic group. I'm quoting the next word, which to me and all Israelis are totally baseless, distorted, and plain lies. So, according to Adila Hassim, one of the South African plaintiffs, and I quote, During the last 96 days, Israel has been carrying out one of the largest attacks in history from the air, sea, and land. The population in Gaza is at risk of starvation and disease while the bombs are falling from above. The scale of death is so huge that the dead are buried in mass graves, often without identification. Israel killed an unprecedented number of civilians with full knowledge of how many would be killed, she claims. She proceeded with other nonsense claims and then took the cake by literally using an anti-Semitic blood libel style claim when she said the following, Israel is trying to prevent the birth of Palestinian babies by withholding medical treatment from pregnant women. By the way, not a shred of evidence, of course. What was the Israeli answer? What was the Israeli defense? And here I just want to give you a few sections of the Israeli defense. One of them was told by the opener who was Dr. Becker, who opened and said, given the history of Jewish people, it is not surprising that Israel was among the first countries to ratify the Genocide Convention without any reservation, and it incorporated the articles of the Convention into the legislation of the State of Israel. For some, and this is the important part, for some, the slogan never again is a slogan only. For Israel, it is a moral imperative. Today, they try to use the term genocide in the context of the conduct of the State of Israel in a war which it didn't start and which it didn't want a war in which Israel is defending itself against Hamas, against the Islamic Jihad, and against other terrorists. Terrorist organizations who brutally know no boundaries. As in any war, the suffering of the Palestinians in this war is extremely difficult. It is heartbreaking. The petitioners, unfortunately, present an extremely distorted legal picture. Their whole case depends on some kind of collection of manipulative descriptions. On Israel's defense team was also Professor Shaw, who said the following. First of all, I'd like to talk about the matter of the context. The context is the one that creates the framework when we talk about this petition. South Africa, in its petition, 
uses the word context many times. In particular, it states that it is important to include the word genocide in the broad sense of Israel's behavior against the Palestinians during the 75 years of what they call the apartheid regime. Why only 75 years? Why aren't we talking about 1922, when the Commonwealth of Nations declared the right of the State of Israel to exist? Or in the Balfour Declaration? Or before that, perhaps also the entry of the Israelite tribes into the land of Israel 3,500 years ago? After all, the immediate context for the genocide is on October 7, when Hamas terrorists raided the borders of the recognized State of Israel and committed atrocities. Professor Shaw emphasized and said, These events are the ones that really constitute the context that South Africa should have talked about, if it is talking about genocide. Another member of Israel's defense team, Dr. Galit Rajwan, answered the claims that Israel is purposely trying to kill and destroy the Palestinians by saying the following, Israel's efforts to minimize the damage caused to the civilian population as a result of the fighting is the complete opposite of a desire to destroy them. South Africa stated that Israel gave a day's warning to civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate. In fact, the Israeli Defense Forces asked civilians to evacuate to southern Gaza for three weeks until it launched the ground defense. Three weeks that provided Hamas with advanced knowledge of the places where the IDF would operate. The applicant, South Africa, distorts this fact. This distortion is at best a lack of familiarity with the events and at worst, a desire to frame their story into a pre-prepared narrative. Dr. Stecker from the Israeli team described a hypothetical scenario in which such a discussion would have been held during World War II and would have required the Allies fighting the Nazis to surrender, then consider whether the Allied forces really committed genocide. Interim orders must have limitations. Can an interim order require a country to change the government? or vote in a certain way in a general assembly? The answer must be no. The state must have the reasonable right to defend itself. Furthermore, an organization recognized as a terrorist organization by the world is committing atrocities against another country, that is Israel, and now a third country, South Africa, is asking the court for an interim order that prevents Israel from defending itself, but does not prevent the terrorists from acting. This type of injunction will only encourage the execution of additional terrorist acts. Dr. Tal Becker, once again, said, If there's a place for an interim order, this interim order should be against South Africa. South Africa is known to have close ties with Hamas, despite the fact that many countries recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization. These relations continue without interruption even after the horrors of October 7th. South Africa is very happy about its ties and brags about ties with senior Hamas officials, including a senior Hamas delegation that visited South Africa for a solidarity meeting a few weeks after the October 7th massacre. South Africa is thus essentially reneging on its commitment to the convention. It is now being asked to meet its obligations to put an end to the rhetoric regarding the delimitization of the existence of the State of Israel. Incredibly, the court was asked to provide an interim order calling on Israel to stop all of its military activities, But this is actually an attempt to prevent Israel from its duty to protect its citizens, its commitment to the Israeli hostages, and the commitment to more than 100,000 displaced Israelis, evacuees, who want to return to their home. 
Dr. Becker also pointed out that families of hostages are present in the courtroom. He said, About 240 people were kidnapped, including people with disabilities, Holocaust survivors, families, women, and children. Some of them were executed. Many of them were tortured, sexually assaulted, and are being starved to death in captivity. The representatives of the families of the hostages are here with us in court today, and we acknowledge their presence and the great suffering they are experiencing. Okay, so now we come to the question of what are the possible decisions that the court can make? It is estimated that there's a high probability that an order will be issued against Israel, although not 100%. But it could also issue other types of orders. For instance, as mentioned, the most serious order is an order that would demand an end to the fighting in the Gaza Strip. The second is the possibility that the court will decide on issuing a declaratory order, which would call, for example, to investigate the statement of certain Israeli personalities. Yes, some Israeli politicians have said some idiotic, irresponsible words, like in many other democracies. But none of these politicians that have a running-of-the-mouth issue make any decisions. And third is the possibility that the court will say that we must allow, Israel must allow the flow of humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip, something which Israel is already doing. In any case, a decision regarding the temporary orders is expected to be made in the next week or two, or maybe more than that. At this time, the court will not rule on the question of whether Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. These discussions may last, as I said at the beginning, a year or two. Now, again, it's a possibility that the court will decide to have an interim injunction that Israel must stop the fighting. Now, is this coercive? It'll be bad news for Israel. It's not good for Israel if the court decides that. Not internationally, not at all. Having said that, in order for that decision to be coercive, the Security Council of the United Nations would have to also adopt the same decision. In the Security Council of the United Nations, we have the United States, which most likely will veto such a demand. Look, anyone that studied the studies of genocide, anyone that understands in international law, anyone that can look at the facts presented to the court, especially those presented by South Africa without a shred of evidence, will tell you that the entire idea that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian is totally bogus. Leaders of Israel, leaders of the Israeli Defense Forces have often said that the Israeli Defense Forces is the most moral army in the world. Having served in the Israeli Defense Forces, I totally agree. Of course, I may not sound objective, but if you look at the facts, you will see how moral and how careful the Israeli Defense Forces are about not harming innocent civilians. And I want to take you back to what Dr. Tal Becker said in a speech to The Hague. He said that never again may be a slogan to many people, but never again to Israelis and Jews is not a slogan. It is a moral imperative. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all the podcast media sources, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.